So here are three different ways to say the same thing. We have three very different editorial styles, and I submit that the type of editorial style selected has an effect on how you, the partaker of the news, perceive these stories. I'll read just enough of this New York Times article to give you a taste of the flavor of the editorial style. An Obama restoration on foreign policy? Familiar faces could fill Biden's team. Oh, that doesn't sound too bad. The president-elect has several veteran aides to choose from, even as some liberals complain about a return of the foreign policy blob. Well, who are these socialists anyway? Who cares about them? We didn't need them to get Biden elected. That's what you hear when you read this from the New York Times, right? But no, it couldn't be. A venerated news outlet such as the New York Times could not possibly be that biased. They wouldn't do anything to thwart socialism now, would they? By Michael Crowley. President-elect Joseph R. Biden Jr.'s national security team is likely to be largely staffed by former Obama Situation Room regulars prepared to restore foreign policy principles discarded by President Trump. Well, we all hate Trump, so that must not be too bad. An Obama redux would be a source of enormous relief to establishment insiders, tell me about it, who are desperate to see seasoned hands regain control of national security seasoned hands. But that likelihood is also causing disquiet among some younger, more liberal Democrats impatient with their party's pre-Trump national security instincts, which they consider badly outdated. But what do they know? I think virtually everybody who gets named will have served under Obama, said James Mann, the author of books about foreign policy advisors to Mr. Obama and former President George W. Bush. While their collective resumes are impeccable by the standards of the Council on Foreign Relations, some party insiders and analysts say Mr. Biden's team-in-waiting may be too cautious and conventionally minded at a moment when party insurgents and activists are challenging democratic orthodoxy on subjects like Israel, military spending, and counterterrorism operations in the Middle East and North Africa. But the older and wiser members of the Council on Foreign Relations obviously know better than these young upstart liberals. I think it's funny that they still call people they don't like liberals, when liberals are exactly the people they do like. If there are party insurgents, which I doubt, and if there are activists, which I doubt, they aren't challenging democratic orthodoxy, at least not in ways that really count. To some, not us of course, but to some, they are representative of what Mr. Obama's former Deputy National Security Advisor Ben Rhodes famously derided as the blob, a Washington foreign policy establishment too confident in American hegemony and too willing to resort to force. They also grumble about their corporate connections, noting that Mr. Blinken and Ms. Flournoy in 2017 founded the Washington consulting firm West Exec, whose slogan has been bringing the situation room to the boardroom. Its roster of current and former employees is a who's who of likely Biden appointees that includes Ms. Haynes, a former principal. I don't know if you can tell, but that's Ms. Haynes' head right behind my head here in the picture. They're bringing in the usual suspects. There are no new faces here, said John Mearsheimer, a political science professor at the University of Chicago and a frequent critic of Washington's foreign policy elites. 
And to the extent there are new faces and younger people, they sound just like the usual suspects. Now I'll turn to the Trojan horse editorial style. Will the Biden team be warmongers or peacemakers? This is an alternate article by Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies. So that's a pretty good start. Congratulations, Joe. People all over this pandemic-infested, war-torn, and poverty-stricken world were shocked by the brutality and racism of the Trump administration and are anxiously wondering whether Biden's presidency will open the door to the kind of international cooperation that we need to confront the serious problems facing humanity in this century. So maybe Joe will do the job well, huh? Maybe the authors of this story like Joe. For progressives everywhere, the knowledge that another world is possible has sustained us through decades of greed, extreme inequality, and war as U.S.-led neoliberalism has repackaged and force-fed 19th century laissez-faire capitalism to the people of the 21st century. The Trump experience has revealed, in stark relief, where these policies can lead. Well, that's okay, say the comfy liberals who have read thus far. It's Trump's fault, right? Joe Biden has certainly paid his dues to and reaped rewards from the same corrupt political and economic system as Trump, as the latter delightedly trumpeted in every stump speech. But Biden must understand that the young voters who turned out in unprecedented numbers to put him in the White House have lived their whole lives under this neoliberal system and did not vote for more of the same. Nor do they naively think that deeply rooted problems of American society like racism, militarism, and corrupt corporate politics began with Trump. Ruh-roh, these young people may be on to us. Why do we have to talk about young people? Who cares about young people? During his election campaign, Biden has relied on foreign policy advisors from past administrations, particularly the Obama administration, and seems to be considering some of them for top cabinet posts. For the most part, they are members of the Washington blob who represent a dangerous continuity with past policies rooted in militarism and other abuses of power. These blob-like policies include interventions in Libya and Syria, support for the Saudi war in Yemen, drone warfare, indefinite detention without trial at Guantanamo, prosecutions of whistleblowers and whitewashing torture. Some of these people have also cashed in on their government contracts to make hefty salaries in consulting firms and other private sector ventures that feed off government contracts. Whoopsie. As former Deputy Secretary of State and Deputy National Security Advisor to Obama, Tony Blinken played a leading role in all of Obama's aggressive policies. Then he co-founded West Exec Advisors to profit from negotiating contracts between corporations and the Pentagon, including one for Google to develop artificial intelligence technology for drone targeting, which was only stopped by a rebellion among outraged Google employees. Since the Clinton administration, Michelle Flournoy has been a principal architect of the U.S.'s illegal imperialist doctrine of global war and military occupation. As Obama's Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, she helped to engineer his escalation of the war in Afghanistan and interventions in Libya and Syria. 
Between jobs at the Pentagon, she has worked the infamous revolving door to consult for firms seeking Pentagon contracts to co-found a military-industrial think tank called the Center for a New American Security, CNAS, and now to join Tony Blinken at West Exec Advisors. Nicholas Burns was U.S. Ambassador to NATO during the U.S. invasions of Afghanistan and Iraq. Since 2008, he has worked for former Defense Secretary William Cohen's lobbying firm, the Cohen Group, which is a major global lobbyist for the U.S. arms industry. Burns is a hawk on Russia and China and has condemned NSA whistleblower Edward Snowden as a traitor. As a legal advisor to Obama and the State Department, and then as Deputy CIA Director and Deputy National Security Advisor, Avril Haines provided legal cover and worked closely with Obama and CIA Director John Brennan on Obama's tenfold expansion of drone killings. Avril Drone Killer Haines Samantha Power served under Obama as UN Ambassador and Human Rights Director at the National Security Council. She supported U.S. interventions in Libya and Syria, as well as the Saudi-led war on Yemen. And despite her human rights portfolio, she never spoke out against Israeli attacks on Gaza that happened under her tenure or Obama's dramatic use of drones that left hundreds of civilians dead. Former Hillary Clinton aide Jake Sullivan played a leading role in unleashing U.S. covert and proxy wars in Libya and Syria. As UN ambassador in Obama's first term, Susan Rice obtained UN cover for his disastrous interventions in Libya. As national security advisor in Obama's second term, Rice also defended Israel's savage bombardment of Gaza in 2014, bragged about the US crippling sanctions on Iran and North Korea, and supported an aggressive stance toward Russia and China. A foreign policy team led by such individuals will only perpetuate the endless wars, Pentagon overreach, and CIA-misled chaos that we and the world have endured for the past two decades of the war on terror. So that gives us some context, dear viewers and listeners, on how Biden intends to make diplomacy the premier tool of our global engagement. I don't think he means the same thing by diplomacy as I do. Biden will take office amid some of the greatest challenges the human race has ever faced, from extreme inequality, debt, and poverty caused by neoliberalism, to intractable wars and the existential danger of nuclear war, to the climate crisis, mass extinction, and the COVID-19 pandemic. These problems won't be solved by the same people and the same mindsets that got us into these predicaments. When it comes to foreign policy, there is a desperate need for personnel and policies rooted in an understanding that the greatest dangers we face are problems that affect the whole world and that they can only be solved by genuine international collaboration, not by conflict or coercion. During the campaign, Joe Biden's website declared, As president, Biden will elevate diplomacy as the premier tool of our global engagement. He will rebuild a modern, agile U.S. Department of State, investing in and re-empowering the finest diplomatic corps in the world and leveraging the full talent and richness of America's diversity. This implies that Biden's foreign policy must be managed primarily by the State Department, not the Pentagon. The Cold War and American post-Cold War triumphalism led to a reversal of these roles, with the Pentagon and CIA taking the lead and the State Department trailing behind them with only 5% of their budget, 
trying to clean up the mess and restore a veneer of order to countries destroyed by American bombs or destabilized by U.S. sanctions, coups, and death squads. In the Trump era, Secretary of State Mike Pompeo reduced the State Department to little more than a sales team for the military-industrial complex to ink lucrative arms deals with India, Taiwan, Saudi Arabia, the UAE, and countries around the world. What we need is a foreign policy led by a State Department that resolves differences with our neighbors through diplomacy and negotiations, as international law in fact requires, and a Department of Defense that defends the United States and deters international aggression against us, instead of threatening and committing aggression against our neighbors around the world. What, are you trying to say that the U.S. is a big bully? How dare you? We're the greatest goddamn country in the world. Oh wait, that's what the Republicans say. As the saying goes, personnel is policy, so whomever Biden picks for top foreign policy posts will be key in shaping its direction. While our personal preferences would be to put top foreign policy positions in the hands of people who have spent their lives actively pursuing peace and opposing U.S. military aggression, that's just not in the cards with this middle-of-the-road Biden administration. What road are they in the middle of? The Biden administration is right in the middle of the road that leads to further U.S. military aggression. Now we come to the part of the article, dear viewers and listeners, that we're sure nobody up top is ever going to pay attention to. But there are appointments Biden could make to give his foreign policy the emphasis on diplomacy and negotiation that he says he wants. These are American diplomats who have successfully negotiated important international agreements, warned U.S. leaders of the dangers of aggressive militarism, and developed valuable expertise in critical areas like arms control. William Burns was Deputy Secretary of State under Obama, the number two position at the State Department, and he is now the director of the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. As Undersecretary for Near Eastern Affairs in 2002, Burns gave Secretary of State Powell a prescient and detailed but unheeded warning that the invasion of Iraq could unravel and create a perfect storm for American interests. Burns also served as U.S. Ambassador to Jordan and then Russia. Wendy Sherman was Obama's Undersecretary of State for Political Affairs, the number four position at the State Department, and was briefly Acting Deputy Secretary of State after Burns retired. Sherman was the lead negotiator for both the 1994 Framework Agreement with North Korea and the negotiations with Iran that led to the Iran Nuclear Agreement in 2015. This is surely the kind of experience Biden needs in senior positions if he is serious about reinvigorating American diplomacy. And surely he's listening to Bernie Sanders now. I'm sure Bernie will help him with these appointments, right? Right? That was me if you couldn't tell. Tom Countryman is currently the chair of the Arms Control Association. In the Obama administration, Countryman served as Undersecretary of State for International Security Affairs, Assistant Secretary of State for International Security and Nonproliferation, and Principal Deputy Assistant Secretary for Political Military Affairs. He also served at U.S. embassies in Belgrade, Cairo, Rome, and Athens, and as Foreign Policy Advisor to the Commandant of the U.S. Marine Corps. Countrymen's expertise could be critical in reducing or even removing the danger of nuclear war. It would also please the progressive wing of the Democratic Party since Tom supported Senator Bernie Sanders for president. Well, that dude is fucked for sure. 
In addition to these professional diplomats, there are also members of Congress who have expertise in foreign policy and could play important roles in a Biden foreign policy team. One is Representative Ro Khanna, who has been a champion of ending U.S. support for the war in Yemen, resolving the conflict with North Korea, and reclaiming Congress's constitutional authority over the use of military force. Oh yeah, Biden's gonna want Ro Khanna for sure. Another is Representative Karen Bass, who is the chair of the Congressional Black Caucus and also of the Foreign Affairs Subcommittee on Africa, Global Health, Human Rights, and International Organizations. If the Republicans hold their majority in the Senate, it will be harder to get appointments confirmed than if the Democrats win the two Georgia seats that are headed for runoffs, or than if they had run more progressive campaigns in Iowa, Maine, or North Carolina and won at least one of those seats. But this will be a long two years if we let Joe Biden take cover behind Mitch McConnell on critical appointments, policies, and legislation. Biden's initial cabinet appointments will be an early test of whether Biden will be the consummate insider or whether he is willing to fight for real solutions to our country's most serious problems. This article still sounds as though the authors believe that maybe Joe Biden will do something good for this country. U.S. cabinet positions are positions of power that can drastically affect the lives of millions of Americans and billions of our neighbors overseas. No shit. If Biden is surrounded by people who, against all the evidence of past decades, still believe in the illegal threat and use of military force as key foundations of American foreign policy, then the international cooperation the whole world so desperately needs will be undermined by four more years of war, hostility, and international tensions, and our most serious problems will remain unresolved. Ding, ding, ding. We tried to tell you, motherfuckers. That's why we must vigorously advocate for a team that would put an end to the normalization of war and make diplomatic engagement in the pursuit of international peace and cooperation our number one foreign policy priority. LMAO. Whomever President-elect Biden chooses to be part of his foreign policy team, he and they will be pushed by people beyond the White House fence who are calling for demilitarization, including cuts in military spending and for reinvestment in our country's peaceful economic development. Are these the pussy hat resistance people who are going to be doing this pushing? Just curious. It will be our job to hold President Biden and his team accountable whenever they fail to turn the page on war and militarism and to keep pushing them to build friendly relations with all our neighbors on this small planet that we share. Isn't that sweet? I think a stern lecture is in order. And now we come to the third editorial style. Caitlin Johnstone. Biden will have the most diverse intersectional cabinet of mass murderers ever assembled. Well, you'll be happy to know that the next U.S. president and his crack team of ventriloquists are assembling a cabinet of mass murderers that's as diverse, inclusive, and intersectional as America herself. It's been obvious for a long time that Joe Biden's cabinet would be packed with Obama holdovers, war pigs, and whatever primary opponents he owes favors to, but now that he is the media-anointed winner of the presidential election, we're getting a bit more confirmation on who they're expected to be. A new Politico report informs us that the heavy favorite to lead the U.S. war machine into further imperial conquest as Secretary of Defense is a butcher of the fairer sex named Michelle Flournoy, who was Obama's Undersecretary of Defense for Policy from 2009 to 2012. 
In an article titled, Biden, a war cabinet? Anti-war's Marianne Everett writes the following. Flournoy, in writing the Quadrennial Defense Review during her time as Assistant Secretary of Defense for Strategy under President Clinton, has paved the way for the U.S.'s endless and costly wars which prevent us from investing in life-saving and necessary programs like Medicare for All and the Green New Deal. It has effectively granted the U.S. permission to no longer be bound by the U.N. Charter's prohibition against the threat or use of military force. It declared that, when the interests at stake are vital, we should do whatever it takes to defend them, including, when necessary, the unilateral use of military power. While working at the Center for Strategic and International Studies, CSIS, a top defense and national security think tank based in Washington, D.C., in June 2002, as the Bush administration was threatening aggression towards Iraq, she declared that the United States would need to strike preemptively before a crisis erupts to destroy an adversary's weapon stockpile before it could erect defenses to protect those weapons or simply disperse them. In 2009, she joined the Obama administration as Undersecretary of Defense for Policy, where she helped engineer political and humanitarian disasters in Libya and Syria and a new escalation of the endless war in Afghanistan before resigning in 2012, report Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies in another anti-war piece on Flournoy. Those are the same Medea Benjamin and Nicholas J.S. Davies that I was just reading to you from. From 2013 to 2016, she joined Boston Consulting, trading on her Pentagon connections to boost the firm's military contracts from $1.6 million in 2013 to $32 million in 2016. By 2017, Flournoy herself was raking in $452,000 a year, which is small potatoes to how much she helped Raytheon raise. I'm sure Raytheon considers her $452,000 a wonderful investment. Flournoy would be the very first female head of the U.S. War Department, and if that doesn't make you want to listen to Pink and kiss your Hillary Clinton pendant, I don't know what will. Here's yesterday's article, Will Michelle Flournoy Be the Angel of Death for the American Empire? I should stop here and thank Medea and Nicholas for their good writing, even though I made fun of some of it. The point they seem to be missing is that we won't have any left power going forward to demand much of anything. A favorite to lead America's other war department, also known as the State Department, is former National Security Advisor and Ambassador to the United Nations, Susan Rice. Rice is an ideal choice for a leading role in the Biden administration because she holds the valuable trifecta of being A, female, B, black, and C, an enthusiastic promoter of the Iraq invasion which murdered a million human beings. Some quotes from Rice, courtesy of Everett. I think he, then Secretary of State Colin Powell, has proved that Iraq has these weapons and is hiding them, and I don't think many informed people doubted that. That was from NPR in 2003. Oh, NPR is on the good guy team, right? It's clear that Iraq poses a major threat. It's clear that its weapons of mass destruction need to be dealt with forcefully, and that's the path we're on. I think the question becomes whether we can keep the diplomatic balls in the air and not drop any, even as we move forward, as we must, on the military side. I think the United States government has been clear since the first Bush administration about the threat that Iraq and Saddam Hussein poses. 
The United States policy has been regime change for many, many years, going well back into the Clinton administration. So it's a question of timing and tactics. We do not necessarily need a further council resolution before we can enforce this and previous resolutions. NPR, November 11, 2002. Requests for audio of Rice's statements on NPR were declined by the publicly funded network. Hey, shouldn't that be illegal, NPR? Where's the public's right to know? Fuck NPR. Here's a photo of Susan Rice with Yossi Cohen, head of the Mossad. Rice, who is also notorious for helping to deceive the world into the destruction of Libya, may have difficulty getting confirmed for Secretary of State in a Republican-held Senate, but one way or another, she's guaranteed to be playing some role in the Biden administration. Also under discussion for a role in leading the U.S. threshing monster is Senator Tammy Duckworth, who has for months been aggressively attacking the Trump administration for not confronting Russia over the completely discredited claim that Moscow had paid Taliban-linked fighters to kill occupying coalition forces in Afghanistan. You might think that someone who promotes Cold War escalations on a daily basis, which have no relationship to facts or reality, might make Duckworth an unsuitable candidate for military leadership. But what you are apparently too bigoted and Russian to realize is that the senator from Illinois is both a woman of color and handicapped. I bet you feel silly now. Tweet by Senator Duckworth. Reminder, Donald Trump has not publicly called out a foreign dictator who reportedly has put bounties on American troops for 130 days. Up for consideration as leader of America's most sociopathic government agency is Obama's former CIA deputy director, Avril Haines, who protected all perpetrators implicated in a Senate report on CIA torture from suffering any consequences for their unspeakable brutality and helped redact that same report. If selected, Biden would become just the second president with the highly progressive distinction of selecting a female CIA director, the first being Donald Trump when he appointed torturer-in-chief bloody Gina Haspel, whose appointment Haynes supported. I don't know about you, but I can't wait to see how else the decency president plans to uplift us with girl power and diversity of ethnicity and sexual orientation in the most powerful force of human slaughter in the history of civilization. 2021, here we come. Intersectional Omnicide. Our weapons will be manufactured by corporations that have pansexual CEOs and Muslim shareholders. The bombers will be emblazoned with rainbow flags and flown by empowered women of all colors who will scream, Yaz, Queen, as the mushroom clouds arise. The desert sand will turn to glass in the blasts and that glass will become a ceiling and that ceiling will be shattered by a lesbian CIA director. People will be vaporized on the spot or watch their own bodies fall apart like sandcastles, but they will never be misgendered. We will march as equals, white, black, Asian, indigenous, and whatever miscellaneous extras we can find, so long as they're photogenic enough for Instagram, arm in arm singing fight song in one voice beneath a drone-filled sky to the edge of extinction, where we will leap together screaming, this is all Susan Sarandon's fault, into the face of the abyss. It won't be pretty, it won't be wise, but at least for one glorious flash, we will get to feel like we really tried. That didn't rhyme, by the way.